please turn in your copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 3. We'll begin to read from verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Just a recap on the book of Matthew, just to kind of um, locate where we are. Matthew's concern is to show the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so chapter 1 really begins with showing that Jesus is king from um, from the genealogy, that Jesus is part of the Davidic 
uh, royal line, that, that royal lineage that goes back to, to King David. But he also shows that he is king by his miraculous con- conception that we see in chapter 1. Chapter 2 moves on to show that Jesus is king even in the circumstances of his birth and in the way that um, even Harold uh, at that point in, in, in irony says, I am king of the Jews. Um, the visiting of the Magi and their worship, all of that showed that Jesus is king. The threat of Herod and Jesus' escape and his parents into Egypt, all was trying to reflect, all the circumstances around, around that were, were really pointing the fact that this is the king. What Matthew's concern is really to, to show from, from the rich tapestry as he brings out the rich prophecies from the Old Testament to show that they are fulfilled in this Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all those promises. He is the promised king. And so the purpose of Matthew is not just to show that Jesus is king, but that he is worthy of all worship, that we are to worship him. Today we are in chapter 3 of Matthew. This is a remarkable account of that segue between Jesus' childhood and his public ministry. And so chapter 2 ends his childhood and chapter 4 begins that public ministry. And so we'll look at this chapter under two headings. The first is prepare to meet the king. This is a call to repentance. And the second is Jesus prepares for public ministry, a call to trust him. Just again to locate where we are in the book of Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, this is the first time that God speaks after 400 years of silence. Chapter 3 is the first time that we have a prophet speaking after 400 years. And the very first words that come out of his mouth, as we have seen um, in verse 1, is, uh, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In those days, John the Baptist, we're told, was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. John the Baptist appears on the scene and introduces an entirely new day in terms of redemption history. He calls men and women to repent. These, interestingly, are the very same words that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks at the very first time that he introduces himself in chapter 4 and verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent means to change your mind, to turn around. It is to turn 180 degrees, if you're facing one way, to face the opposite way. It is to turn and to, and to face the other way. It's not just a mental uh, change, it's a change of a heart. It's a change of our actions as well. After 400 years of silence, you probably would have expected the message like, the king has come, let us all rejoice. But no, it is repent. That is the message that John comes with, which is really the fact that these are a sinful people. He presumes that these are people who are sinful, people who are corrupt, people deserving the wrath of God. And therefore there is no meeting with this God unless they turn from their sins. Repent was the message. It was a shocking message that John brought. 
It is the bad news before the good news. It's a reminder, even for us, of our own corruption and our need for repentance. Martin Luther, in the 195 Theses that um, began or sprang the, the Reformation, the very first one is that uh, the life of the Christian is a life that is entirely of repentance, must be marked by repentance. And so this message is for us today. Matthew begins by showing the urgency here of what repentance, uh, of, of repentance. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The urgency is because the king is about to arrive, it's the arrival of the king. And talks about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God really speaks about the rule and reign of God uh, in the hearts of his people. Matthew helps us uh, to understand the forerunner of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the king, uh, who is John the Baptist, by referring in verse 3 to a passage that our brother uh, Jonathan Lomie had read for us a few um, moments ago. Verse 3 of that passage says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. A bit of understanding of the book of Isaiah. The very first 39 chapters are chapters about judgment, God's judgment. And then uh, chapter 40 begins with comfort, comfort my people. And then what are they being comforted about? And then he says here, prepare the way for the Lord. There's a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so this is the good news that a forerunner will come to announce the coming of the king. Matthew makes application of this passage to John the Baptist, that he is the preparer, the forerunner of that way. It is, um, if you are, um, I think back in my country, I don't see it here that often, but back in my country, if there's anyone important coming, the first thing you see is a motorbike with a siren, and then a few more cars coming, that kind of preparation of the fact that someone important is coming. Well, in ancient times, you had a runner going up front and asking people to move, that the king is coming, and this is John the Baptist. We also told something about his dress in verse 4, that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Maybe you might ask, this diet doesn't seem to be a very good menu. Well, the, 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 the purpose of this was not to give us the, the, the full, complete menu of John the Baptist. This is a summary diet. The main point is the implication of this in terms of his lifestyle. What was his mode of life? Uh, that this can be evidenced in his clothing, in his food, that here is a man who was committed to one thing, and this one thing was... Um, not so much for his own self. He was protesting that life of self-indulgence, that life of uh, living frivolously, um, just worldly entertainment, and, and seeking to just hold on to false securities that this world gives. To put it in the words of Jonathan Lomier, he says, forgive us for the idolatry of the entertainment, the things of entertainment that we hold on to. 
That is what John the Baptist here was saying no to. He was committed to one thing. In fact, Jesus here refers to John the Baptist in Matthew 11 and verse 11, and he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there, was, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He was committed to the proclamation of the word of God. Dubai is about great people. Um, each week I hear about someone great being at the expo. Did you cite this person? He might be a footballer, he might be a musician, he might be some important artist. Well, the Bible says no one greater than John the Baptist. What made him great? The proclamation of God's words. A reminder again this week, we'll have a number of our former interns coming in, those who have committed themselves to the preaching of God's words. Let's look for greatness where God sees greatness. 400 years before, as we said, there had been silence. The last words, or rather the penultimate verse of the book of Malachi, uh, chapter 4 and verse 5, Malachi writes, Behold, I will send you an Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Matthew is here describing this as that new Elijah that is to come, calling people to repent, to prepare for the coming king, that the rescuer of Israel is coming. And so John's role was one that would parallel that of Elijah. Remember Elijah in 2 Kings, one who um, had come to proclaim a, fa a, a drought on the land as judgment, and then later came uh, proclaiming the fact that the Lord would restore and refresh his land and bring water again uh, and rains to fall. This was Elijah, and we're told in chapter two of um, chapter one of Second Kings and verse eight, he wore a garment of hair, a belt of leather about his waist, and so we see here a parallel to an Elijah. A new Elijah had come, announcing not only not not so much a fierce day, um, a fearsome day to come, but he was coming as a forerunner of the king. I remember in the week as we read this passage, um, Pastor John Former commented and said, you see, the prophets in the Old Testament saw the coming of Christ and the final judgment as one event. But us standing on this side uh, can see how Christ came the first time and you come the second time to judge. And so we see uh, one who comes burst on the scene like an Elijah and he comes saying, repent, turn, the king is coming. The people here exclaimed, it is Elijah. Rightly so. They saw him and they saw the connection. And so they went out to, to meet him. They didn't go out to meet him in the city center or in the marketplace. He was out in the wilderness. He was there proclaiming the word of God. But we are told that they went, all of Judea went out to meet him. What was he proclaiming? The message of repentance. What is the nature of true repentance? John summoned them to repent. He did not summon them to feel sorry for their sin. Sin has its consequences, and these bring pain and regret. 
one may be brought to that bitter and sorrowful point in their life. Judas was troubled about his sin. He was filled with remorse, the scriptures record. He tried to return the money um, that, he had, that he had got from betraying the Lord Jesus Christ, but that failed. He was sorrowful, but instead of turning to God in his sorrow, he was full of despair. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians as he, writes, uh, as he writes in regret to the letter that he had written. He says, I regret um, that I had rebuked, um, he says, he regrets that he had rebuked the church for um, a little while, but yet he was glad, the Apostle Paul writes, that your sorrow led to repentance, that this was not just a feeling, but that this led to actual repentance. True repentance leads to a change of heart. John summoned them to repent. He did not summon them to self-condemnation, simply feeling guilty for sin. God does not want us to suffocate under the guilt of sin, a, a wallowing in our self-accusation. It, that's another form of, of, of selfishness, really, where uh, one, I've heard this before, says something like, you know what, I can't forgive myself. That is a, is a self-guilt, which is really from a position of selfishness. One seeks to bear their own guilt. You want to remove your own guilt by your own resolutions. I will do better at this. Repentance is not about a clean-up job of our lives. It is not, I will not blow up at my wife or my children. It is not, I'm not going to cheat again on my hours at work. It is not, I will stop watching pornography. It is not, I will stop uh, talking behind my boss. It is much more than a clean-up job. It is a heart change. It is a change from, I was devoted to this idolatry, and I am turning to God. True repentance looks inward at one's sinfulness, has an accurate look at our own sinfulness, and that the outward harm that we have done because of our sinfulness, and an upward look at God and seeks um, God's, God's forgiveness. Hear this from Psalm 41, 51, sorry, and verse 4 and 5. This is the psalmist David. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is one who looks to God. I know there are some here who are carrying a burden of sin. They have wronged, it, they have wronged the way they have dealt with others in the way that they have carried on their life. And perhaps you look at that point and you want to turn away and look elsewhere. The Bible calls here to look to God, to turn to God. It's a turning from your sins and trusting in God. It is more than just a sense of feeling guilty at sin. The people's reaction in verse 5 we see, Then Israel and all Judea and all the people about the Jordan were going to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. True repentance is about admission of sin. 
Can you see that in, those, in that line? They confessed their sins. Um, they, they, they did not hide their sins. And this is about us having a hatred for sin. But not only that, about us being particular about sin. In the last couple of weeks, I've made a number of hospital visits um, with, with, with my son who wasn't uh, well. He had um, um, a, a problem with the, with the shoulder. And when we went there, he didn't just say, you know, I have some pain somewhere around my body. You are particular when you go to a doctor. It is here that is paining. And when he says he wants to see, you quickly want to begin and say, you, you should see how bad it is. And obviously by the time we left, the doctor had done all his examinations and they had done all the scans and so on and said, actually, it's a fractured uh, clavicle, clavicle bone. And that's the same thing with God. We go to God particular with our sin. It is not general. Um, we go before a doctor, one who is a physician of the soul, and we want to confess particular sin. John was baptizing openly for all who repented. And so we see here the importance of that order. They repented and they were baptized. That order is important for us as well to see. It began to get uncomfortable. Verse 7, when the crowd saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they probably gave way for those important dignitaries to come up front. And curious, I'm sure, the Pharisees and the Sadducees moved up to the front um, to hear more from, from John the Baptist. But John saw their hypocrisy, and he says, you brood of vipers. Literally, he's saying here, you offspring of snakes. He warns them uh, to not presume upon their status, upon their lineage as being a part of Abraham. He calls them here to repent from a sin. A refusal to repent will result in judgment, irregardless of one's background. Children, irregardless of who your parents are, irregardless of which church you are a part of, irregardless of the good things that you have done in your life. Oh, I'm just a good person. That is insufficient. God calls us to repent. Our cultural background, our status, our reputation cannot save us from the judgment that is to come. We have all turned away from God. Unless we repent and turn to him, we will come under the judgment of God. Verse 8 reminds us of what this looks like. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's calling them to more than just a cognitive assent. He's calling them to a change of life. We want to see this in one another more and more. This bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. It just doesn't want to start at one point and stops. It's something that is common amongst God's children. This bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. We see that the New Testament is very clear about our family not being, um, our physical birth not being our entrance or access into God's family. Neither is baptism that point. Baptism is not a sign of one being born into a covenant family. Instead, it is a sign indicating that no matter what background you're from, 
irregardless of what your lineage is, if you personally repent and confess and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are included in that family. And so this is what repentance really stands for. Uh, it's what baptism really stands for. It is the fact that I have repented of my sin and I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that many were baptized. In verse 10, we see that repentance is, costs, costs us everything. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. All who do not produce fruit in keeping with repentance will be thrown in the lake of fire. A reminder for us that this is serious business. This is a danger you and I cannot ignore. Justice will be meted out. Jesus will come a second time, and this time not to save men and women from their sins, but to judge the world. No one can appeal to their family or to their good works or even to being a part of a good church. Without repentance, there is no eternal life. The Bible is clear. The Bible is unapologetic. God will come with perfect justice, and this will be in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is not enough. If Christianity was just about repentance, it would be no different from all the other religions out there, saying, try harder. Just do some more good works. Be nicer. Be better. Continue coming to church. Verse 11 shows us that repentance is not enough. You turn and your sight must be on someone else, someone more glorious must be that captivating influence in your life. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. It was necessary for John to make this contrast, that though he was a popular teacher, though he had such influence that many came out in the wilderness to hear him, he was saying, I am not the Christ. Repentance is about that U-turn that we make, not just a behavioral change, not just a moral change, it's a reorientation of the heart, says Michael Lawrence in his book called Conversion. A turning from idol worship to worship the true God. It is that quest that is saying, I must be right with God. John the Baptist turns the spotlight here from himself to Christ. And so he points men and women to turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I guess that's what all preaching is about. That's what this pulpit has been for the past 50 years, proclaiming that we'd turn from our ways and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In contrast to John, we see the description of, the job description of Jesus here in verse 11. I baptize you with water, with, with water for repentance. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? It's a work 
of the Holy Spirit in which he gives us new life. It is according to Paul in Titus chapter 3 and verse 4 and 5, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is the work that Christ comes to do. And he says, and by fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Some allude that this baptism by fire refers to Pentecost. Remember that time when they appeared uh, to them these divided tongues as of fire resting on them? Some would say it refers to this occasion. It was um, the, the illumining light of the Holy Spirit or, or, or the purifying effect of the Holy Spirit. But when you read verse 10 of this passage, which really talks about judgment, and verse 12, and so verse 11 is sandwiched in between this. When you read it in its context, what you see is that he's actually saying ultimately this verse speaks about that judgment that, will, that Christ will bring at his return to cleanse the earth of all unrighteousness. We can read of this in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. And so when he talks about by fire there, he's also referring to the fact that Christ will come and Christ will come in judgment. We are called to repent and turn to Christ and be captivated by him because Christ paid for our redemption. He took our punishment. Christ took the judgment that we deserved and laid it on himself. God cannot demand justice twice on Christ and also on us. Christ paid. The Holy Spirit comes in us that our hearts would be turned towards him, that we would be changed and become more like him in order for us to be able to obey him and love him. And this begins that process in us of sanctification. So we've seen there the job description of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is one who comes, um, firstly, to renew us and to give us new life, and secondly, he will come as judge. Verse 12 gives another uh, agricultural metaphor to explain this. He describes the day of judgment there. He says, Christ will separate the grain from the chaff. The chaff he will cast into hell. The chaff he will cast into the place of unquenchable flame. And the wheat he will gather for that for himself. Um, and these will be welcomed um, into, his, into his eternal rest, into his presence. And so we see that Christ comes in order to judge if you are not a believer, if you are visiting with us or you have been invited here by a friend, um, the Bible is very clear that there is a judgment to come. And this ought to be a motivation for you to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. As we see disasters happening in the world, these are but a faint echo of the fact that God will come in judgment. Jesus prepares for public ministry. This is the call to trust in him. Jesus made this journey, a 70-mile journey from Galilee to, to the Jordan, and he comes to um, where John the Baptist was baptizing. 
So we can see that Christ came with clear intent, made this journey to where John, John was. And he steps forward to be baptized by, by, by John the Baptist. See John's reaction. John is shocked at this. John actually tried to prevent this from happening. And so he, he goes and says, you don't need to be baptized by me. Um, he's almost saying, one so high and holy like you certainly cannot be baptized by me. And the Lord Jesus Christ responds in verse 13, I need to be baptized by you. John was reasoning here thinking, one who is greater is one who blesses one who is lesser. But here the order is reversed. Verse 15, Jesus says, <clears throat> Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says that this needs to happen as a part of redemptive history. That through this, Jesus was endorsing the ministry of John the Baptist, saying what John the Baptist is saying about me is true. And so he stepped forward to be baptized. He also goes on to say, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does this mean? It means it is fitting that we meet all the demands that the Father has placed uh, on me, that I fulfill all according to the law. But much more so, Jesus was identifying with us. This was a mark of his humility. Jesus was sinless. He did not need to be baptized. But he comes here affirming that Jesus was resolute about him identifying with us as sinful people. Jesus steps into the water to be baptized, a willingness that he was willing to carry our sin, the sin of the world. Jesus identifies with us in our sin to provide for us an alien righteousness, as Martin Luther puts it, one that would save us from sin. He was coming in as our representative to take our place. John the, Baptist, John the Baptist's baptism uh, was really a precursor of our practice today. And so John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism of repentance uh, for the confession of sin. But our baptism is much more than that. It is our union with Christ. That we are united with Christ, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. John's baptism was like Jesus' death. Jesus was sinless, and yet, and that's why John was hesitant to say, look, I cannot baptize him. But Jesus, who was sinless, did not need to die, but he died out of love for us. He came to identify with us in our sin. He took our place. He took our punishment. And so Jesus was baptized. Um, I don't want to believe, belabor this, but um, he came out of the water. That should speak something about baptism and what it is. It is baptizo, an immersion into the water and a bringing out of the water. I think there's some, a number of silent points that we learn here about what true baptism ought to look like. And immediately we have this very dramatic scene that happens. The heavens open. That's not just a statement in passing. 
That phrase was used in the Old Testament to signify times when the Lord came down, when he spoke to his people. Remember, for 400 years, the Lord had not spoken. The heavens were silent. The people had mourned, and heaven was shut like brass. But here we are told, Behold, verse 17 begins, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This was the inauguration of the last days. This is a glimpse into the inauguration of the first day of public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is speaking. Heaven is not silent. The heavens are open. It is as Isaiah prays, in um, Isaiah 64 and verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. As a hymn writer, seven, as a hymn writer says, Heaven has nothing more to give. God himself has come down in the person of Christ. The Holy Spirit here was symbolized by the dove. His anointing work in the Old Tes Testament carried two purposes. The first was the setting apart, and the second was the equipping for ministry. Jesus here was equipped by the Holy Spirit for the special ministry. The Holy Spirit rested on him. Christ's divine nature needed no equipping. He was incapable in his divine nature of being strengthened more than he is. But with respect to his human nature, he needed to be strengthened. He needed to be equipped. And so verse 17, as the son freely, voluntarily goes into the water to be baptized and is affirming his wholehearted commitment to the task of bearing the sin of the world, that infinitely heavy load of sin and being our representative, the voice of heaven, speaks. God in delightful speech speaks, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is actually two quotations from the Old Testament. It has an echo of Psalm 2 verse 7, which is really a royal psalm, uh, a, a psalm of coronation, and Isaiah 42, which is the suffering servant. And really, God in heaven speaks, and this unique combination of these two passages really describes to us what the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ will be, that it will be a kingly ministry, but it will also be one of a suffering servant. The Father loves the Son. The Father cherishes the Son. And there is no higher love possible than that between the Father and the Son. And at this point, he affirms that ministry of the Son. The Father expresses that inexhaustible delight in the ministry of the Son. The Father approves of the Son's affirmation um, of what Christ was affirming through his baptism. We see this repeated grandeur, and even to a greater scale, at the time of Christ's death on the cross. It is there that God vindicates the Son, and so we see this in his re resurrection, and is exalted to that right hand of the Father. What a glorious picture. 
it showed us that salvation is not a solo work. It's a work of the Father um, sending his Son and being pleased to open the heavens and to speak with such delight to the Son. It's about the Son loving us and being willing to suffer for our sins. And it's about the Holy Spirit coming to strengthen him in this work. It's about the three in one coming together in order to accomplish this salvation. We can now experience of this love that Christ came and purchased for us. What will we say in application of such a glorious passage? We have seen Christ's love for his bride, the church. What is then our ministry as a church? This, year, as, this week, as we reflect on 50 years, what does that mean for us as a church? Well, firstly, here we can see that repentance and being baptized is the first thing that John the Baptist calls the church to. As I said earlier, Martin Luther said, repentance is the entire life of the believer from first to last. This should characterize us as a church. Repentance is not something that we just do as individuals. It's something that we do as a church. Look at Revelation, the book of Revelation. Christ writes to the church, like the church at Ephesus, and he calls them to repent for their love had grown cold. And so even us as a church, how are we doing in terms of our commitment to times of corporate prayer? It's not just you as an individual. It is us corporately. How are you drawing others and saying, come on, let us repent, let us turn back to God? How are we doing in terms of our commitment to um, volunteering for Fort Sand? Well, it's not only for the few who are down there, but how are we encouraging one another and strengthening and enabling one another to see that the children's ministry is filled uh, to the capacity in terms of the, the requirements of teachers that are required. The Bible calls us to repent. How are we doing uh, in terms of those who are more mature believers, discipling younger believers in the church? How are we doing as younger believers asking and seeking that others would disciple us within the church. If this is not just for two or three people, this is the church that we are being called to. We see John the Baptist who is very single-minded in his proclaiming of the gospel. How are we doing in terms of our boldness in sharing this gospel? Pastor John always says, the worst thing that can happen to us as a church is not being shut down. The worst thing that can happen for us is that we are inconsequential to the society around us, implying we do not share the gospel of salvation with our neighbors, with our workmates, with our colleagues. We just exist here. And that's the very worst thing that can happen to us as believers. This gospel that we have heard, the grandeur of this inauguration that is ours as, as God's children. This is something we ought to embrace. And true greatness is going out to proclaim this good news to those who do not know Christ. 
If you're here and you do not know Christ, how will you escape such a great witness? God had spoken the prophets. God had spoken through John the Baptist. This is Christ who comes. Will you continue to refuse this salvation? I plead with you, repent and trust in Christ. We have looked at how we ought to be prepared to meet the king, a call to repentance, and we also looked at um, Christ preparing for his public ministry, a call for us to trust him. This is the king. Are you trusting this king? Are you turning from your sin? Is your life marked by bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, we thank you for its simplicity that even babes would understand these words. Oh, we pray that we would not turn away from you. Oh, we pray that we would not uh, be a people that are hard of listening, a people that are stubborn like the Pharisees. Oh, we pray that we would be a people that are marked by repentance, this grace that comes from above, a people that are continually being transformed more and more to the likeness of your Son. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness in this, your word. We pray that you would shape our hearts by this, your word. Pray for any who do not know Christ. Pray for our children who are even with us in here this morning. Oh, we ask that they would hear your word that they would turn and trust in Christ. For this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.